you for joining us for this week's sermon. Today, we are concluding our sermon series titled Acts, United by Fire, and Susan Thiessen will be speaking on Acts chapter 15, verses 5 through 11. In this sermon, we find ourselves at the hinge point of Acts, which tells the story of the Council of Jerusalem, which is where the question is raised whether Gentile believers should follow the law of Moses. We see that despite immense disagreement, the church remained united. We are then asked to look at our disagreements that we have with other believers and ask whether we could commit to choosing love over judgment. What are we arguing about? Have you ever been part of a significant disagreement either in your personal life or in a church that you attended? That's probably a, that's, you know, that's a dumb question because of course we've all been part of a significant disagreement somewhere along in our lives. Something that was painful and had the potential of tearing relationships apart. I remember back in the, I'm going to date myself, in the late 80s and the early 90s when churches still had an organ and a real piano, like a, and not electronic, and they, we had choirs and they wore robes. Can you picture that? How many of you guys remember that? Oh, I see those hands. <laughs> and... Um, it's kind of hard for us to imagine that from our vantage point. And the transition from that to contemporary worship, what worship looks like on this stage here and now, um, it was very contentious. And it tore apart relationships as some folks tried to hold on to the way things had always been done. And others tried to push forward with the hope that it would be, be um, inclusive to people of younger generations. And it's, it was a very difficult time that absorbed an inordinate amount of emotional energy. So when I think about conflict, I have this strong memory of how difficult it was for everyone involved and how fracturing the results were. But I have to tell you a funny story. So I just had come to varsity a long time ago, and the organ sat here, it really did, and the real keyboard sat there, and we hummed and hawed for a long time about getting a digital keyboard. And so Pastor Keith finally said, what if we just left the cabinetry for the organ here, we'll just leave that here, but we'll gut it. We'll take out the, all the organ stuff, and then we'll buy a keyboard and we'll put it inside the cabinetry and no one will know. And so we did for a long time. We had the organ cabinetry there with the, with the electronic. And then finally we got rid of the, everybody sort of found out over time and no one really cared. And eventually the organ cabinetry went away. But it was our kinder, gentler way of trying to move ourselves to something a little more, um, a little less fracturing. So the question I want us to think about today is, can disagreements in church communities be resolved without destroying the community? Can that be done? And this is not an insignificant question. Can the spirit unite us even when we have disagreements? 
And if the answer is yes, well then how on earth would that happen? And maybe more to the point, how could we ever imagine it happening these days with our access to social media, with its amazing capacity for stirring up conflicting points of view and giving people a platform to say the most terrible things, most hurtful and divisive things to each other and about each other, which just complicates things further. And as I was thinking about this, it brought to mind the American author uh, Beth Moore, who has written many books and Bible studies over the years and influenced hundreds of thousands of people in their walk for Jesus. And her research, her reach has been significant and her voice deeply respected. But in 2021, you know, that wasn't a good year. If we could just write off like 2020 and 2021, we'd probably be in good stead. Um, she found herself in disagreement on some theological points as well as some of the ways that Christian leaders were living out faith that didn't honor Jesus, mostly within the denomination she called home. And she had the courage to speak out her disagreement and that was the beginning of the end. The backlash was immediate and um, it was terrible. People tore her apart, said amazingly unkind things about her, including some high-profile Christian leaders who perhaps should have known better. And in the end, because she could not condone some of the things that were going on and the directions that the denomination was going, Beth Moore found herself bullied out. And as I followed the story, I watched disagreement that destroyed relationship and ministry and outreach. And I might even add Christian witness. I think it was all heartbreaking. And maybe the question the whole issue begs is, can we disagree with each other and still stay in fellowship? Can we stay in relationship? Or if we can't manage to live together with our differences, at least can we agree to disagree civilly? Hmm. Uh, uh, or does disagreement always mean that we must break relationship? I want you to hold on to that question because we're going to come back to that in a bit. But first, some background. So today we're in the book of Acts again, and we're in the part of the story of the early church followers where things are shifting yet again. And the first shift has already happened. Jewish followers of God, so the Jewish people, have recognized Jesus as their Messiah, the one sent from God, and they've become followers of the way. So that's a big shift from being followers of Yahweh to followers of Jesus as the Messiah. And it's been an amazing transformation as people have given their allegiance to Jesus. But so far, most of the people in this story have been Jewish. And Peter has been their main spokesperson. He's the one who walked with Jesus, saw him die, come alive again, and he is now the one that's preaching the significant sermons, he's healing people of their sickness, getting the, he's getting himself thrown into jail, he's doing the work of encouraging new believers, and in this part of the story, he is a key player. He continues at the center of this story right up until Acts chapter 15, where we find ourselves today. And uh, we find um, in Acts 12, 
um, it's probably the last significant story about him. He ends up in jail, but that's the story, you know, where the angel comes and miraculously lets him out of jail. So things are shifting. Things are beginning to move. The second shift begins to happen in the new church, and it began in the passage that we talked about last week when we looked at the story of God sending Peter a message letting him know that this good news story was not just for the Jewish people, but included all people everywhere, including the Gentiles. This had been a shocking message to Peter because he was under the impression that God thought of those others as unclean. But he goes with what he heard from God. He meets a Roman captain of the guard named Cornelius and his whole household, and God's spirit falls on all those people there. And beyond a shadow of a doubt, God shows that his intent has always been to include everyone in his good news story. There will be no othering or excluding people based on who they are or where they're from. Everyone has access to God. So in the background of this story, that's the story, in the background of that story, what's happening kind of concurrently is that Saul of Tarsus enters the story and um, he, he, we read about Saul of Tarsus' conversion, which happens in a dramatic encounter with Jesus in a bright light on the road one day. And Saul, you might know, was a Jewish Pharisee who was convinced that Jesus was a charlatan, that Jesus was misleading people away from the true faith. And in his attempt to stop that, you know, get, get a finger on that, he went from place to place arresting new believers and throwing them in jail. So when new believers said Saul's name, they said it with fear, like, oh my goodness, Saul, ooh. But now, Saul has been stopped in his rampaging tracks and struck blind. There's nothing like an out-and-out crisis to invite you to think differently about the things you always thought you knew for sure. He meets Jesus, and eventually his eyes are healed, and no less significantly, his heart is healed. And he's met Jesus, and he'll never be the same again. His name gets changed to Paul, and he began to learn the way of Jesus. So eventually he could be instrumental in helping others meet Jesus too. So we're coming up to um, Acts 15. In 13 and 14, it talks about Paul and Barnabas, and they're going around preaching, and they're telling people about how the forgiveness of sins is something that could never come through the law, but could only come through Jesus. And, and, And... Paul is still preaching in the Jewish synagogues as he goes around, but the opposition is growing. People are disagreeing with him. And so eventually he gets himself stoned in the most unkind sense of the word, and he, uh, they think he's dead. They leave him for dead. And, but he actually didn't die, and he and his friend Barnabas head off to Antioch, where our story picks up. So now we find ourselves in Acts 15, which is considered by many as sort of the pivotal chapter in the book of Acts and the story of the fledgling church. And some theologians refer to it as the hinge point of Acts. And the story is about to take a second big shift. 
with something new and significant happening. So we're going to take a look at what that means um, for them, what it meant for them, and how it played out, and then what it will mean for us. And if what happened with Paul and Barnabas in the background in Acts 15, if that's what was going on, um, Peter, Peter is, is slowly fading out of the record, and Paul and Barnabas are becoming a more significant part of this story. But in the foreground of all this are Gentile men and women who are hearing about Jesus, giving their lives over to him, and walking in a new kind of way. And there are more and more of them all the time. But then, ominous music playing, but then our passage says this. It wasn't long before some Jews showed up from Judea. Or as another version says, some of the sect of Pharisees who believed rose up, insisting that everyone be circumcised. If you're not circumcised in the Mosaic fashion, you can't be saved. And Paul and Barnabas were on their feet at once in fierce protest. Let the disagreements begin. Well, if at first glance you think this is all about circumcision, you wouldn't be entirely wrong. It is about that, no question. But it is, at a much deeper level, about something much more fundamental. It's actually about how a person is saved. Are you saved by your faith in Jesus, whose life and death and resurrection bring you forgiveness of sins, and make you sons and daughters in his family? Is that how you're saved? Or, and here's the million dollar question, are you saved by a combination of keeping a set of rules or laws that then allow your faith in Jesus to be realized? Is forgiveness and belonging a gift? Or is it something that must be earned? This was the question that must be answered. It's the question that has to be answered by every generation, us, but it certainly needed to be answered back then and be settled because going forward, everything was going to depend on that answer. Well, the men of the Pharisee sect who'd become Jesus followers were not suggesting something beyond the pale of reason. We need to be clear about that. The Jewish people had always understood that um, God required obedience to the law as part and parcel of belonging to him. And they always believed that. And so it's understandable that they would have difficulty imagining that this would not continue to be the case. After all, God doesn't change, does he? So these converted Pharisees had come to Antioch to sort out Paul and the new Gentile believers because they really thought that they were theologically correct, and that the rest were misguided. And what the conversation set off, now you can picture this, was this huge discussion and disagreement between two ways of understanding God's saving grace. And the answer that they would arrive at would make all the difference for the long run. Are Christians made right with God by faith alone? or by a combination of faith and obedience to the law of Moses? Is the work of Jesus by itself enough 
to save the one who trusts Jesus? Or must we add our works to Jesus' work in order to be made right with God? I think it's a good question. Salvation by works or salvation by grace? They're different, and the answer would take the fledgling church in very different directions. Well, at a local level in this church in Antioch, there was lots of discussion that you can imagine and arguing and back and forthing between Barnabas and Paul and the believers from Judea. And they would, they would have presented their cases and talked about why they believed what they believed. But at the end of the day, they simply could not agree. So, metaphorically speaking, they needed to send this case, to, it needed to be referred to the Supreme Court, right? They needed to boot it up a level, which in this case were the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. And the church needed an arbitrator who would listen to God on their behalf and help them resolve their fundamental issue. So at great inconvenience and probably cost, a delegation was sent back to Jerusalem to what we now refer to as the Jerusalem Council. And the verse actually says, now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. They gathered because they were not going to let this issue just sit or drift, nor would they leave it up to the conscience of each believer because the matter was too important for that. And I picture them sitting around a big, I don't know, board table, right? Uh, surrounded by interested parties with a stake in the conversation and taking on this issue head on. And it would have been a heated conversation at the very least. Well, before we get into the Jerusalem Council, can we stop ourselves for a moment and ask ourselves, if we had a major disagreement at varsity, how would we handle it? What would we do? Well, first, I think we'd personally be praying, I hope we would, that God would protect us and help us as we navigated this difficult situation. We'd all be praying like crazy. And then we'd talk, right? Because that's what we do. We'd try and sort things out and resolve whatever the issue is. And we'd have small group discussions and focus groups. We'd probably send out a questionnaire. We'd make the pastors available so they could meet with your small group. We'd try to hear everybody's voice. But what if the issue kept escalating? Well, then I think we'd gather ourselves corporately and we'd pray. And then we'd talk some more, because that's what we do. And then we'd most likely even talk some more. But despite this, I will guarantee that some people will get upset beyond what they can bear, and they will leave the church, hopefully to engage somewhere else. And others will stay and let their voice be heard. But what if, at the end of the day, we couldn't figure out how to resolve whatever that theological difference or issue was? What then? Would it ruin some people's faith or send people packing? Would there be wholesale gossip or backroom meetings? That doesn't sound much like us, but you know, you never know. Or would we cancel each other out and maybe even implode the church? Oh man, that's all worst case scenario thinking, don't you think? But any of those things are real possibilities. If you've lived long enough, you've seen it happen a time or two. 
And I remember, like, when I was planning this, I thought of a story that Pastor Keith told us from a while back. He had a friend who was a pastor at a church, and their church wanted to bring up and surface, make space for a conversation about something that was very contentious. And they weren't thinking they'd resolve the issue. They just wanted to allow it to surface so that they could think about it and they could have some conversation about it. Well, by the time that whole thing was done, which took approximately three years, the church had imploded and there was nothing left. Nothing. And it destroyed them. And the pastor was shocked at how quickly and thoroughly that had happened. And I remember he warned Pastor Keith. He said, if you think you can just talk about something contentious these days, you're fooling yourself. If you do it, you could very easily destroy your church. Woof, I never forgot that warning um, that came with it. And you know, you know me, I, I, have, I have some uh, conflict uh, anxiety. I don't I like conflict, so you know, I try to stay out of those conversations. Um, and I really value this community that I've had the privilege of walking with, and I couldn't bear that something like that would happen. But these are the days we live in. And the question we're asking ourselves is, is there any possibility that we could be different? That we wouldn't do that? And I don't know the answer to that, to be honest. So let's be clear. What can tear a community apart doesn't just have to be a disagreement on a purely theological level. Uh, for instance, I was thinking about what went on recently with the pandemic. I hate to even bring that up, but here we are. And how fractious that was for so many church communities. I'd read in Christianity Today, you know, as people came down on different sides of the fence as it related to masks and vaccines and social distancing. And there did not seem to be any way to talk about the issue without just making everybody plain mad. What was wrong with us? I don't know. And, you know, in, in whatever you believed, you believed with all your heart because you believed you were right and you couldn't figure out how the people who disagreed with you could be so completely misguided. Ugh. And, uh, and so people left their church communities en masse because they couldn't imagine sharing communion with someone who had, or had not, had their shots, or who was, or was not, wearing a mask. And there was lots of counseling done during those two years, and everyone who did it, did it because they believed they were representing the heart of Jesus. And what we really needed was our own Jerusalem council, don't you think? We needed a group of respected apostles and elders who would hear the arguments, listen to God on our behalf, and then come down with a ruling that we heard and respected and agreed to live by, which is also part of the weak link in the chain, because these days we don't respect many people. We don't respect our leaders, and so having someone actually do that and having us listen is also a bit of a challenge. Oh man, we live in interesting days. My children say when I say interesting, I really mean it's not good. <laughs> if I say that about, oh, that's interesting. My kids go, oh, you don't like that. 
Our current iteration of church simply doesn't allow us to lean that direction. We're just really democratic, right? So if we have a disagreement, we call a meeting and we talk, or at least to start with, and we all would like our say, right? And you should listen to me because I usually have a good grasp on whatever the topic is that we're discussing. You could ask my husband about that. <laughs> okay, don't ask him. <laughs> Um, we discuss and discuss, and then many times whoever has the loudest voice or the most vo votes sways the decision. But you'll notice in today's passage that that's not how things were done, which is good because this is a really big deal. So on so many levels, how we're saved, not to mention whether Jewish uh, Gentile congregations will be mostly made up of men, Go, I mean, of women going forward, if the decision swayed in the direction of newly converted men needing to be circumcised, wouldn't be many of them in the church. The church decides, decides to resolve the matter by sending Paul and Barnabas and a few others to put it before the apostles and leaders in Jerusalem. So here's some things they would have had to talk about. First, that there was now a new covenant, which Jesus called the new covenant in my blood. The Old Testament covenant included keeping the law as a faithful follower of Yahweh in order to be declared righteous. But this was a new day. Jesus was now the source of people's being right with God, not good works. And it was a big change to how people um, had previously thought and believed. And secondly, Paul had been challenging the Greeks that he spoke to, making it clear that they couldn't just merely add Jesus on to the pantheon of Roman gods that they were following. Jesus could not just be one more of a whole bunch of gods that they paid homage to. Along those same lines, the Pharisees who'd come to Christ had to be encouraged not to just tack Jesus on to their existing way of following Yahweh. They had to turn from their efforts to earn their way to God by keeping the law, and they had to look to Jesus. Jesus couldn't just be an add-on. That's challenging. And finally, Paul himself was a former Pharisee before he became a Christ follower, so he would have totally known intimately how the Pharisees were struggling with this change of thinking and believing. But his own encounter with Jesus made it clear that Jesus didn't help him do what a Pharisee does only better. He knew that Jesus was his salvation. The Pharisees needed to let go of some of the old ways of thinking and doing things if they were to follow Jesus well. And then most significantly, if all of that were true, then there could be no requirements for Gentile con converts to be initiated into Judaism through circumcision. This truly was a new day. And verse 7 states that after much discussion, that half sentence there, after much discussion, encapsulates probably a lot of heated talk over a lengthy period of time in which each side presented its case. And then there would have been prayer and consideration. And the Jerusalem Council, made up of respected apostles and elders, came to the conclusion that a person was saved by faith in Jesus, period. 
And I picture the delegation going back to Antioch and there being this huge church-wide celebration, especially by the men, as they received this very good news. Well, that's their story. And this is ours. So here are some questions that I want us to sit with as we wrap up this conversation. What holds us together when there's a disagreement in our community? If someone were to show up here and st stir up division, what would we do? Are we clear probably on what the fundamentals are that form the bedrock beneath our feet? We do have a statement of faith, which you can find on our church website. And it's part of what unites us as followers of God's spirit, as followers of God in this worshiping community. It'd be good to know what unites us and holds us together. Well, if our statement of faith is our list of essentials, we also have all kinds of things that fit in a category called non-essentials. Things not related to our salvation, but things that we still think are important and then we get them out of scripture. And they're, they're not necessarily less important. It's just that we leave those things up to people's conscience. And I, I, I met uh, Ruth's friend this morning and, and she, her background is at Bethany Chapel. And it made me think when I was a young adult, I would go to Bethany Chapel um, for their early morning service on the way to my own church because I was in the basement all the time with kids. So I'd stop and go to Bethany and they made me wear a hat. They made me wear a little doily on my head. And um, that fits in the category of a non-essential. Whether you wear a hat or not is um, up to your conscience, but it doesn't determine your salvation, at least I don't think it does. If I'm wrong, you can correct me later, in the kindest and gentlest way. And then I was thinking about, you know, that's just a small thing. I remember my, my parent, my mom had a little booklet of, from the 1950s of what you could and could not do as a part of the worshiping community that they were part of. And it told about, you know, if you wanted to sing in the choir, you couldn't wear lipstick and nail polish. <laughs> You couldn't, couldn't sing in the choir or teach Sunday school. And I remember my mom, who didn't grow up in a Christian home, going, well, then I'm not going to sing in the choir. <laughs> Anyways, those were cultural, and we left them up to people's discretion. But then there were other things that felt like bigger deals, so I was thinking about, I have to tell you a story to get us there, but Elmer and I went down to the, um, uh, the Field of Crosses um, during the week of Remembrance Day, it was very impactful. They had lit a candle in front of each cross, and there are 3,500 of those crosses. And so you stand there in the dark with these candles, and it's heartbreaking. And so I said, I wonder if there are any Tysons in this listing of crosses. So, you know, you have to go to the far end. We went down there and looked, and there weren't any Tysons. And we were thinking about that. And first of all, um, the Mennonites were newly immigrating to Canada at that point in time. He had uncles who were just coming of age, but weren't old enough to actually be in the war. But also, Mennonites are pacifists, by and large. And so in their reading of scripture, they had decided that fighting war was not something that they were going to do. It's not an essential. Whether we agree on that is not going to affect our salvation. It's still a big deal. But it's not a thing, I'm going to say, that we would allow 
to rip ourselves apart over. And so um, there's all kinds of those things in the background that, um, that we think about, fighting in a war or not, um, it's important, um, but the decision one way or the other doesn't determine our acceptability to God. And we don't believe our salvation hinges on those kinds of non-essential things, any of them, the important ones and the less important ones, still those are the things we leave up to people's conscience and discretion. And yet, those can be some of the things that tear us apart, right? Whether we wore a mask or not, whether we got a vaccine or not. And I think, what was happening there? Oh my goodness. Um, so the question we're invited to consider is, would we commit to choosing love over judgment? Could we do that when it comes to issues of conscience, especially when we don't agree with each other? Could we, offer, could we agree to offer each other grace and forgiveness rather than angry judgment? I really hope we could say yes. Our ability to live at peace with each other is an important part of living out the kingdom of God and the values of Jesus. And Jesus said, our witness outside our doors hinges on how well we love each other. Because it doesn't easily happen with a group of people who are diverse outside our walls. People don't generally collect themselves with people who aren't like themselves, but we do it here. And then can we find a way to love each other? Because I think that's what sets us apart in a life-giving way. And finally, can we remind ourselves that our ability to live together in peace is based on the work of the Spirit, both in our lives and in the life collectively of our church? We are in deep need of the Spirit of God to change and guard our hearts to draw us into divine love, the divine love of the Trinity, and make us like Jesus. We're saved by God's grace. We're held by his love, and we're changed from the inside as a result. The Spirit can and will unite us, even in our disagreements, if we're willing to allow him to do his work. Can we pray that our answer to the Spirit's invitation to live together in peace will be a resounding yes? I want to end with these words from the Apostle Paul, words written to churches who were struggling with the very questions of how you were saved by faith in Jesus or the keeping of the law, and then how to live out their faith in a good and life-giving way. And their struggle with disagreements was threatening to tear them apart, so... Hear these words. You, my brothers and sisters, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law, everything, is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment, just this one, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. It's the encouragement and the warning. So he says, love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil and hold on for dear life to what is good. 
be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Don't burn out. Keep yourself fueled and aflame. Be alert servants of the master, cheerfully expectant. And don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Bless your enemies. No cursing under your breath. Get along with each other as much as you can. Don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. And if you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. Don't let evil get the best of you, but get the best of evil by doing good. Oh, I love that line. Don't get, let evil get the best of you, but get the best of evil by doing good. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources to help further your study throughout the week, you can go to vbchurch.ca forward slash sermons.